everyone. We're back here again live. It's Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific. Uh, there are other time zones out there, so we, uh, we're, we're inclusive in that respect. We, we love all of our time zones. We love talking about the future of higher education, and we also love having uh, outstanding guests who are joining us. We have all those things happening, Terry, and we're also very happy to be back in our first uh, post uh, inauguration session. The last time we met was, uh, hooray, uh, the last time we met, uh, we were uh, we were witnessing uh, the, the Capitol riots. So the last time we had a session was January 6th. So hopefully this session will be calmer uh, and will give us more of an opportunity to weigh in on what's happening in the world around us. Uh, and then we have, we have Terry as, so any thoughts at the top, Terry, just as we're kicking off? Just that it's been a crazy few weeks. I mean, you know, we went from the riot in the Capitol to the inauguration to mm -hmm. now we're seeing this flurry of executive orders um, mm -hmm. coming down. And that's a lot of work for those of us who are working in some of these different policy areas. Yeah, yeah. I think, so I think the phrase you're looking for is, how is your second year of 2021 going? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's uh, that's Maria Anderson, uh, the CEO of CoreStunes, who's back. So Maria, welcome. As What's it like? This is your second time on. I think you might be our first second time guest. So congratulations on that. How does it, how does it feel? I, I'm an old timer now, and you know it's been like a decade since I was here. <laughs> so, uh... Oh my God, the way time passes is crazy. Because because uh, we had Maria on back in uh, October, uh, talking about instructional design, course uh, design, all that kind of stuff, uh, uh, and uh, we'll be back talking to Maria a bit more. But we also wanted to welcome uh, Miriam. Uh, I got Feldblum. your name, Miriam Feldblum. Yes, is the other <laughs> the other guest from the, pre the President's <laughs> Alliance. Welcome to your first time. So we're also, again, we're, we're friendly regardless uh, of your, your exactly. endeavor with us, but welcome. How, how are you doing? How are things? Uh, can you introduce yourself a bit so folks can uh, sure. get a sense of who you are? Sure, and I, um, my name is Miriam Feldblum. I'm the, one of the co-founders and executive director of the President's Alliance on Higher Education and Immigration. That's the apostrophe after president. So we're an organization representing college and university presidents and chancellors from public and private institutions. Mm -hmm. We have over 500 members from 43 states, uh, DC and Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. So we're large, we just are starting our fourth year of existence. We actually started in another world, which was in 20, end of 2017. Uh -huh. And we've now entered a new world for immigration and higher education. Yeah, and we're going to go deep on uh, as much of that as we can get to as one of the major areas we wanted to dive into. Uh, I think the three areas we wanted to dive into was immigration, uh, course design, instructional design, uh, just some of Maria's perspective on where the world's going and where we might head to uh, on the other side of uh, Corona and whatever else is going on. And then Terry, uh, also your book is coming out soon as well. So uh, can you can you give us a, an update on that? Yeah, we are planning on some webinars that will be uh, coming up at towards the end. Basically, our, our first is February 25th at noon. We'll be having a webinar where I'll be talking with Julie Lithcott Hames, who's the author of How to Raise an Adult. And we will be talking about why I started this project and you know how it's resonating now. I mean, you know, in so many ways it ties to what happened two weeks ago, right? It was yeah. the and the title, the title, just, I don't know if oh, you yeah, hit that, sorry. Hit that beat yet, but, uh, <laughs> but it's a good one to hit. Yes, Radical Empathy, Finding a Path to Bridging Racial Divides, which, you know, we saw in plain view two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, and, and it's interesting because, you know, to come back to the inauguration, um, you know, Joe Biden, that's the first time somebody's even mentioned white supremacy in the context of an, an inaugural address. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we are, you know, really coming to terms with, um, all these different issues that really collided, um, <laughs> you know, physically on yeah. the day of, of uh, you know, January 6th. And so, you know, it's this issue of, you know, privilege and, and but, you know, it's voter suppression, it's mm -hmm. white supremacy, it's these, you know, violent groups and militias that, you know, came armed. Right. And, 
prepared to, you know, basically go into the Capitol. And yeah. so, you know, it's, it's really interesting how these things are coming together at this time and that, yeah. but you know, the, I just want to, I can't not mention Amanda Gorman. Um, oh my God. Because, if you didn't, yeah. I was going to. <laughs> exactly. Because we went from this place of deep darkness mm-hmm. on January 6th yeah. and two weeks later, you know, January 20th, we, right. 20th we, we're in this place of light. Right. <laughs> and, you know, she's kind of leading us into the light. Exactly. And that was such, yeah, I get chills even thinking about the, that poem because, mm-hmm. and I, I, I've decided I'm just going to listen to it. Every, you know, I'm going to have it handy on my phone. Yeah. And when I'm feeling down, just listen to that poem and, yeah. you know, to get, regain my energy. So yeah. I maybe, think- we, Maybe, maybe play a little uh, Eye of the Tiger uh, <laughs> un, under, underneath. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. what I do when I'm getting ready to run. But Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's uh, she was brilliant and yeah. I also think that there are intersections you may think curriculum design immigration radical empathy wait are these connected yeah. topics? but they totally are because racial equity immigrant justice empathy mm-hmm. right and what does our higher education look like yeah. What transformative you... nature of it? Sure. Who's being transformed? Mm-hmm. You know, how are campuses being transformed? Yeah. Um, really, there's there's so many intersections, and for higher education leaders to understand when they think about racial equity on their campuses, they need to think about it also through an immigration lens. Yeah, and you know, and an instructional design lens too, because right. that, that's that's the part that I I think is interesting too. Like how how do you design something that will effectively train your uh, policy people on immigration policy or train your HR function uh, on, uh, you know, social justice, you know, that these are very much top of mind. And, uh, and then Maria, from your perspective, do you work on all types of instructional design? Because CourseTune is pretty flexible that way. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we're a curriculum design platform, right? So we're kind of like an operating system uh, for, for curriculum design. We have, you know, the, the the complex data structures required for it, the features, you know, that you can't get in spreadsheet software, you know, the ability to yeah. share courses, things like that. But um, I think one of the things we've seen in the last year, which I'm sure I brought up last time, is just that that we education, especially higher ed, has gotten away with not designing curriculum for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Not in online classes. I mean, online since the very beginning has been under increased scrutiny compared yep. to the rest of higher ed, right? Well, we just saw what happens when the rest of higher ed, when all of those fly-by-night face-to-face classes get thrown into an online environment. Yeah. And the first thing that happened was kind of chaos with, you know, instructors not knowing how to convert, how to teach students not liking sitting and watching a lecture, which they do in person, but I think there's a lot of note passing and like uh, social interaction. Nonverbal, social, I'm watching a movie, what are you doing? You know, like there's a lot of that going on in person, which the professors kind of ignore. Mm -hmm. And and so, so now I think what we're seeing is instructors who are now trying to do it more carefully are discovering that online is a heck of a lot more work because you, up front, you're required to do this huge lift, right? Mm-hmm. If you try to do it, if you try to do the lift as playing around you, it's crazy. You do not yeah. have time, right? I mean, a typical well-designed online course can take six to 12 months prior right. to the course starting to build yeah. out the whole thing, right? You can't build four different preps during the time you teach while you teach totally. it, right? Yeah. And so I think what, what we're starting to see is this recognition that like, oh, Online design is actually way more careful design than face-to-face yeah. design is. Right. And I think that's super important because, um, you know, we we want to get to this feature where we can be more aided by machine learning and have better analytics and things like that. But we can't have any of that. We don't get to play with the nice things. Yeah. If we don't even know what's in the courses. Yeah. Right. Which, which, which is really interesting, though, if you think about the cycle time on stuff like what you're dealing with, Miriam, uh, where you you must have had to rewrite almost your entire like policy guidelines over the last, or or you or you have to do that, you know, maybe every day for the last week. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I don't want I don't want to trigger you, but like, but it's got to be it's got to be a really challenging when there's this level of a shift, and then you know, how do you be thoughtful about designing when 
you really have to play catch up a lot of the time. Yeah. Well, you know, and I want to get back to Ulsa Marie. I have some questions for her. Yeah, but in please. Terms of, in, 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 you know, in, in terms of what it has been like between the past four years and the past two weeks, right? The past four years, you didn't know what executive order, harmful rhetoric, harmful policy change, deleterious action would be coming up that day. Mm -hmm. And that you had to respond to, and that you had for our organization, our goal was both to support our institutionals to respond themselves, right? Mm -hmm. To give them the tools to advance collective actions, to ensure effective practices, to support students, and to kind of connect with other advocates so that we're defending. So it was a, you're under siege, you're mm -hmm. constantly defending, you're trying all different manners of advocacy and litigation yeah. and work. You're playing defense, yeah. You're playing a lot of defense. Thanks, Mark. Mike, that's really yeah. what, it, what it is. Terry, Terry and I understand things through sports <laughs> analogy, so I was trying to keep her engaged, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, we had great conversations with the transition team. All of a sudden it's like, okay, what are we trying to do? So there's a lot of um, kind of three buckets of work. One is rolling back harmful policies. That's a lot of what we were already keeping our eye on and certainly doing in this new world. Mm -hmm. Second is repair, repair kind of some of the, it's not only rolling back, but repairing some of the issues that we have in the system, the visa mm -hmm. processing that were an issue before yeah. 2017, even worse now. The third, not going to talk about it now, but it's really re-envisioning. Yeah. We'll roll back, repair, but re-envision, and that's really important. And it does tie also to Maria's, you have to re-envision how you're going to advance. And certainly for immigration issues, that's going to be big for higher education. This is a time to lean in with the first two, help with the re with the rollback repair, but now is also the time to re-envision. Yeah. Um, but here's a question I have for, for Maria, because I understand that it's there's so much more intentionality going on with the curriculum design. From our perspective, thinking about how both immigrants and some international students have had to navigate yeah. the online world, it's, it's actually sometimes more difficult to understand mm -hmm. instructors. There's cultural competencies that the, the gaps come through sometimes more with online instruction. There's logistics, right? You're waking up at 2 a.m. or 12 a.m. to start your day. And those, but at the same time, you want things that are in the moment, right? Rather than, you know, just kind of yeah. listen to recorded lectures. So I don't know how you're thinking about those issues. So I, I do think that there's a big difference between a well-designed online class and a poorly designed online class, right? There's also a big difference between remote learning and online learning, right? And online learning is typically asynchronous. So there wouldn't be a requirement to get up at, you know, 12 a.m. Unless you were, of course, trying to meet a deadline you hadn't met and were doing at the last minute. That's, you know, somewhat self-control. Um, but uh, I, I think that we have to, um, we have to acknowledge it, that at the, while some things in online classes are harder, some things are actually easier. If I am a, an, an English language learner and I go to a face-to-face -face class with a professor who has a very thick accent and it's, and it's synchronous face-to-face, -face, I might not understand a word that ever happens in that class and I have no recourse to ever understand it. However, if I got that lecture in an online class, it should be captioned. If it's in the right platform, I can slow it down. I can rewind it, I can replay it, right? So at the same time, you miss some of the spontaneity and, and maybe the body language of the face-to-face -face space, that can be fixed to some extent in an online class by seeing the professor as a picture in picture as part of the video and things like that, right? Like I always record my, uh, my lessons now with me in the corner so they can see somebody smiling at them while mm -hmm. they're being taught, right? It's not just a hand teaching them or a marker teaching them. It's a person teaching them, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think some of that just comes down to, you know, good design principles. I think there are online classes that knock some face-to-face -face classes out of the water in terms of how good they are. Right. And I know they can absolutely be as transformational as some face-to-face -face classes. Mm -hmm. I think the, the problem always happens when we generalize and we say, you know, like, face-to-face -face versus online, which is better, 
well, right. Well, and then and then you add the, you add the layer you add the layer of like hybridization and yeah, totally what should be in person. Can you deliver to both in person and remote at the same time? It is a time to be uh, experimental, I would think, and and ideally measure what's working and what's not. But uh, but I think that's another challenge. Is frequently for things to be measured, there needs to be that thoughtful design that. Uh, that that you're talking about, Maria. And, and I think the thoughtful design means that there are really clear expectations about things. So if you have, if your design includes your your course objectives and all of the learning objectives that feed those course objectives, and every week you know what learning objectives you're covering, every learning objective is tied to some learning activities, to some assessment activities. When you take an assessment, you know what learning objectives you needed to learn for that. That's all incredible transparency between the, the one designing the course and the student and the instructor who may not have been the one who designed the course, right? The more of that there is in the foundation, the more we're all on the same page communicating the same things. And I think another thing that's gotta be incredibly hard for English language learners and international students is trying to understand all of the unsaid things in the curriculum, whether it's a face-to-face -face course or an online course. Like mm -hmm. we have a test on Friday, what does the test cover? I don't know, whatever we could, whatever we talked about. Well, I didn't understand half of what we talked about. Oh, well, you know, like, <laughs> so I think, I think doing it right doesn't mean you don't have freedom of, of, you know, expression and, and freedom to choose your own resources and things like that. It just means that everybody's on the same page about what is actually supposed to be learned in the class and, and which yeah. assessments and which activities do what. And I actually think it's more than just being on the same page, you're raising the bar. So I think what Dee is writing about the fact like it is harder. So how can you summarize material? So as yep. someone who for years on campuses was pushing, encouraging uh, faculty and others to, um, to embrace universal design yes. for the classes. So in terms of captioning, having classes recording, having, PowerPoints of others both given out prior to the class, after the class, and there's this whole notion of, well, that's not how I teach. But what mm -hmm. I am hoping that in terms of the summary or having transcribing class notes, right? Having that be that in every class, someone is given one or two students may be given the job of transcribing notes, or you have the captions if you're having, you know, a good transcript. Yeah. Um, for online. I think something you said there is really interesting. The faculty member who says, that's not how I teach. It was never about how <laughs> they teach. It was about whether students learned. Exactly. And I think that's the big disconnect there yes. is that nobody in this in the business of teaching should be in it to teach exactly the way they want to. They should be in it for the business of this. They want as many students as possible to learn as much as possible about the subject that they they are guiding them on, right? And however that best happens for individual students, once you can grasp that that's the mission, not I get to be the best teacher, lecturer yeah. usually that I can be, then it all shifts and you say, oh, well, why wouldn't I provide this to students? Why wouldn't although, I? Although, although I, I would push back, a, I'd push back a little bit on the emotional connection that students can develop with a, a teacher or professor who can give them mentor who could give them some continuity of care so like especially at a time when there's a lot of isolation people are in their homes a lot and they are not necessarily feeling that sense of connection that they might have felt pre-pandemic must be a lot a lot more um problematic in k-12 for example especially the younger grades yeah but like for the students i mean at least for the students i teach you know i had I think two thirds of them went through quarantine at some point last, right. last semester. And if I had a student in quarantine, I texted them every day to see how they were right. doing. And, just send and them you were, and you were teaching, gifts, you, you know, were like, teaching, you were teaching math, right? Is yeah, that I was teaching a math class. And, um, you know, that's to me is continuity of care too, right? Sure. It's my, that, my, my point though is, is more like if you were to think about teaching immigration policy to, to administrators or to, international students or if you're doing a diversity and inclusion training yeah the idea of building psychological safety and trust with other humans who are there with you in real time that is also a real dimension i, I think it's still it's a dimension that can be designed 
using instructional design. But I do think the uh, the social emotional. Should I do it, Terry? I get social <laughs> emotional baby. Yeah, I do, I do it. I do it on occasion. But I but I but I do think the social emotional part is harder to design in to something that doesn't have real time. Okay, I'll challenge that. I'll challenge Please. that. So I taught a, a business ethics course a couple times for a community college um, recently. And um, one of the things I built into the course were uh, podcasts and documentaries. Because mm -hmm. when you listen to podcasts, especially I think listening to podcasts, you hear the voices of real people. Yeah. And you have to kind of engage with that with your mind. And it's a very different experience than just like reading some text, right? right. And I found that um, a, a, a good podcast, one that presents you know, multiple perspectives and, and stories can actually layer in a surprising amount of um, kind of context and connection sure. to the student. Yeah. Um, I remember we had a case, uh, We one of the things we talked about in the ethics class was Citizens United and the impact on the country. And I think universally students went in, if they were Republican leaning, they went in thinking it was great. And if they were Democrat leading, they went into the case thinking it was like the devil's work. And actually listening to one one hour podcast about the case that was well designed and covered all the different aspects, you know, of the yeah. justice system and what the laws actually say. And I think about 90% of the students left actually saying, I actually agree with what the judges did here. Yeah. Congress should have done something, right? Like totally. there was a completely different perspective from listening sure. to that, right? Yeah, and so my, my point, I think my point is more that I wouldn't rule out synchronous because even if you think about a good podcast, it was live once. Oh, I- So, so, so the idea that yeah. even in this conversation, a lot of people will probably be watching, more people will probably watch it after the fact than are watching it live. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we're, we don't know what each other are gonna say we're not sure exactly where the conversation is going to go. That level of uh, spontaneous combustion, I guess, but uh, spontaneous <laughs> something um, will earn the learner's attention, whether they're live or not. And when we do it best, I think it a, po a good podcast feels like it's happening organically. I love that we've added synchronous sessions to, you know, what was our traditional online forums. I've done mm -hmm. it for years as an optional activity mm -hmm. with students. Um, I almost always do it for test reviews. They surprisingly show up for that every time, whether they get points or not. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been a great way to, even if it's just once a week for an hour to remind students that they have a sense of community, that they have, mm -hmm. you know, they, they have this class they're taking they might have otherwise forgotten about you know yeah i think it does help to keep us on track to have those yeah. touchstones and those those things but they can certainly be watched after the fact too yeah right? and it's also it's, there's some people who probably do better with that level of real-time community i uh, would actually say that some of this is getting the right learning objective in your course totally. so for example uh, a lot of courses we have these courses we call information dense courses courses like anatomy and physiology where there's a lot of vocabulary to learn and all the learning objectives about are about like defining, explaining, you know, re recalling things like that. But what they really actually need to be getting at is that students need to be able to converse in live conversation with the language, right? That is the whole goal of learning all of the anatomy and physiology language, so that when you're in a room with a patient or in a room with another medical professional, you can talk without googling things, right? Mm -hmm surprisingly converse with the vocabulary of blah, 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 it never makes it into the learning objectives. But that actually then justifies the conversations happening live, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to converse intelligently about the thing you're learning as yeah. a learning objective, right? Yeah, yeah. What yeah. about from your perspective? Yeah, Terry, I'd love to hear more from you, well, even just around in designing for radical empathy or designing some of the courses that you are delivering like well, diversity and inclusion. How do you think about the design? How does that relate to what Maria or uh, Miriam are doing? Well, it comes back to a couple of the questions we've gotten, you know, what is the responsibility, for example, of a student to, you know, know how to deal with the technology and so on, you know, what's our responsibility? And to me, it comes back to empathy because we have to put ourselves in the, the position of the student, whether they're coming from an international perspective, from a low income first generation perspective. I mean, that's why I'm so glad, you know, Miriam, we're buddies since grad, even before grad school, I think. But, <laughs> but um, you know, it comes back to that issue of 
are we connecting in a way that allows us to understand what our students are facing? And yes, there are situations where we're gonna to have to teach students how to use a very basic technology. Um, we can't assume they have a good hotspot connection. They may be working on their phone if we aren't you know, face-to-face. -face. There's so many aspects of this that we have to take a step back and put ourselves in the position. How is this gonna come across to a student who doesn't have any context in American you know, policy and law? <laughs> you know? I mean, even uh, working with some of the, the interns I have at Brighter Higher Ed, I have to remember they don't understand how, how um, decentralized things are. And that's so true of our education system. I mean, people keep asking me, oh, why can't we you know, get our act together around this stuff? I'm like, it's because we're totally decentralized. There's no one, you know, and it's the same thing, you know, that Miriam was saying about, you know, coming up, you know, universal, it's, it's not just universal, you know, approach to it, it's, it's universal access. Mm -hmm. Every student should have access. And that means so many different things, right? right. Mm -hmm. um, so from a radical empathy perspective, we, you know, we got to create change here and really focus on what is it that our students can can do to learn the best possible way they can. So. You know, I would add to that and build on it in that universal access and what we're seeing in this online environment also forces us to revisit equity and what yes. we mean by equity. Yes. And we need to carry that through to post pandemic because again, kind of the, the conventional approach, and I love Maria, right? It's not how I'm teaching, it's what's the students learning, you know? Mm -hmm. That's how you should start. But often it is, well, I need to ensure equity in my classroom so I can't give what's seen as quote unquote kind of special access or double time, mm -hmm. you know, or do something that actually would fit the students' learning needs or out of the classroom needs because it, I'm gonna create some inequitable um, uh, conditions in my classroom. What I'm hoping now is that we take advantage of what we learned that actually there are many different conditions and it's become more apparent during the pandemic, but it's not new. It's been there before and whether it's because of disability, because of family circumstance, because of other challenges, students need to be addressed in distinctive and, and you know, empathetic ways within the classroom. That's and so right. that's what I'm really hoping. And, you know, again, I love the idea of assigning students, you may have done this for the, uh, you know, for the online classes, the, the transcripts, but the fact is it would be useful all the time mm -hmm. to have that. Yep. Think about how you're giving your tests. Kind I, think of actually, I think actually to, to jump off that, it's it really comes down a lot to having a variety of assessments in a class mm -hmm. so that it's not just one type of assessment that one type of student is successful with, uh, that there are a variety of ways that all the students, either they all do all the different types of assessments so that you're kind of leveling the playing field as more creative students do better on those assignments and more traditional uh, tutored at home students do better on tests. And, but if you only have one type of assessment in your course, then you are really, it, it, you are already creating an inequitable uh, situation, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the tricks to that though, just to come back full circle is that, again, if you don't know what's actually in your course, you can't easily get a variety of assessment because you can't over assess everything. So what you right. have to do is pull out the threads of you know, well, which learning objectives are best for this project I'm gonna assign? Okay, that's how I'm assessing those. And pull out some more. Which ones are best for a quiz? Okay, these, let's have a quiz on those, right? Like if you can't pull out those different threads and separate them into, into, their, um, into their pieces, you can't easily get to variety because otherwise what you do is you do overkill and everything gets over-assessed and that's exhausting for students. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, you know, as the mother of a, a son, a high schooler with ADHD, 
you know, I, it, it's like the, the, you know, there was already the existing issues in the classroom and so on, but then you add on the layer of remote learning and, you know, we've had to adapt and, you know, unfortunately the school districts don't seem to have the resources or the energy really <laughs> to adapt to the students. And so I'm very, you know, aware of how this impacts different students, including the students I work with in East Palo Alto who, right. you know, have, don't have, you know, easy, easy access to um, hotspots and things like that. And, you know, I, I wish we had done a better job over the summer of focusing on creating pods um, because now it's like, and I think, it, I know it's because we kept thinking, oh, we're, we're not, we were you know, we're not going to be, yeah, yeah, we're not going to still be, you know, in shelter in place in yeah. January of 2021. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> hey, guess what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very likely my son's going to finish out the school year, uh, you know, remote. Mm -hmm. And I wish, you know, I'd done more about, you know, setting up a pod for him, having, you know, kids who he could, you know, connect with more, you know, face to face, but, you know, it's like, you just, we didn't know. Yeah. Um, but I think um, one of you guys said this, you know, I think Miriam, you said, we have to think about this going forward in the post COVID world. Yeah. And that's what I think is so critical is that what are we going to do post COVID in terms of access? And because, yeah. you know, when I was a provost at Menlo College, one of the things we started working on was creating a plan, you know, like when our power went out for, right. you know, a couple of weeks, you know, not a couple of weeks, but a couple of days, you know, what do we do? What do we do when, you know, there's an emergency and students can't make it to campus? You know, how are we going to get them? You know, so we started working on those plans for, yeah. Okay, well, here's how we're going to provide online, and here's the tools we're going to use, and, and this and that, and you know, what if we have an earthquake, you know, things like that. And so this is not just COVID, you know. And, and I worked, we had a talk on this back in, you know, April or May when we were doing our week. We did a weekly set of COVID webinars, and we talked about this concept. And you know, it's coming back at us now, right? Because it's not just COVID, you know. It's it's the mutations of COVID. It's the right. you know the the snowstorm, you know, as climate with climate change, you know, it's, it's, you know, we just had a storm, you know, come through yesterday in California and there was all kinds of, you know, alerts and warnings and, you know, maybe you tell your students to stay home that day um, because right. we just don't, yeah. It's interesting, Terry, because I think that in international education, as, as many folks know, there's been such a dramatic decline of international students coming right. through the U.S., um, especially this year, because the government had a policy that if you were an initial student still outside the U.S. and your campus was online, you were not given access to come to the U.S., only mm -hmm. continuing students, those were, who were already here, continuing international students. So there's been some great work about virtual international education, about yeah. how you can engage with, you know, students abroad, with projects ab abroad, faculty in ways that you don't actually need physical mobility, right? Mm -hmm. You don't actually need to cross borders. And I think that's great because I also think it increases the diversity and equity for those who can engage in those, in those activities and in those initiatives. However, I would say is we have to get back to physical mobility. Yes. Mm -hmm. you know, international students are such a vital pipeline of mm -hmm talent and diversity and contributions of all kinds for the U.S., not only our campuses, but our communities and our nation. And, and I so think we, I think we've lost a whole cohort of them to other countries who are perfectly willing to still take them. Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, certainly we have countries like Canada, our neighbor Australia, to New Zealand, yeah. <laughs> and happy, happy to take those English speaking students. Exactly. Um, and, and really the diversity of, of international um, of students and also countries in Asia who are really building up. China had already been building up its, um, its campuses. And what's key, and this goes back to for us to re-envision or imagine kind of going forward, is that the U.S. now does not have a national strategy to recruit and retain international students. Mm -hmm. So that they can come here not only to, to study and to apply their learning in a short term, but to really see themselves in the long term. Yeah. That there's a pathway to residency and citizenship. Yeah. That's our goal for the next you know, months and years. 
we need to achieve, we need to develop a national strategy for the international recruitment of, um, for the recruitment of international students. Yeah. And that would also include refugee students, by the way. Right. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And Miriam, I'm curious how you think about this in terms of the role of the Department of Education, because, you know, we've, our Department of Education, well, let, let's pretend that the four, last four years didn't happen, but the Department of Ed has really been hesitant to do anything in the realm of higher ed, right? I mean, it's it's like pulling teeth to get the yeah. Department of Ed to, to, you know, step in. Do you ever wonder if there should actually be two departments of ed? Yes, like I, I think there should higher be one. Ed and one yes. that's built with K-12, since K-12 is so completely a state's issue and higher ed, but needs some national strategy and higher ed is like this completely different conglomeration of private and public and for-profit and non-profit and- it depends, depends how radically we think the disruption to higher ed and K-12 has been and will be, you know, cause, cause I'm, I'm more of a mind that the disruption is significant and that on the other side, we're gonna to need to move faster than historically uh, we have. Yes. And that's where I'm not sure whether a separate administration would accelerate or not. So like, that's that's the part I don't, I don't understand. I, I think the how to accelerate best uh, across dimensions is what I'm most interested in. And sometimes I think higher ed can get a little bit insulated and I'm not sure if it had its own dedicated parallel path that we it would feels have. like we get somebody from K-12 in the top job and K-12 gives a lot of attention and we right. get somebody from higher ed in the top job. I mean, ar arguably- years then, decades. Not, but I mean, uh, I think there's a there's a pretty serious focus on community college that uh, that that's coming yeah. out now, which is kind of the intersection between those two things. So- The Dr. So, Biden effect. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but I, I do think that uh, that stuff will be, I, I like the thinking around um, post- uh, post old thinking, what will the new thinking be? And will it actually, will we revert to where we were or will we actually move into something new and different? And Terry, I'd love to hear more from you around immigration because especially with Miriam here, you know, you're talking about diversity and radical empathy. Uh, and I know that some of your background is even understanding the history of immigration and the, some political science. <laughs> exactly. But I don't know if we, I don't know if we've talked about that with you uh, here and how it also might relate to uh, diversity and equity. Well, you know, there's huge overlap. I mean, everything we do, and this is historically too. I mean, you know, both here and in, actually I've, I've been uh, talking to some of the folks in Europe who, because all of this, you know, the stuff I did on anti-discrimination policy connects very directly to what happens with immigrants um, because of course the large majority of immigrants who are coming both to the US and Europe are people of color. They're coming from Africa, they're coming from China, they're coming from other parts of Asia. Um, and so, you know, when we think about how we deal with you know, you know, equity access, anti-discrimination policy, I, I really do believe we're, we're entering an era where we need to be thinking more broadly about um, you know just the broader immigration flows, and I, I do agree with with Miriam that we need to you know start if we don't start seeing more national strategies around this, um, we're going to get to a point where we're just going to lose out. And so I, I, I the person asked a question about. Um, is it a threat to higher ed institutions in the U.S.? Absolutely, and it's interesting because we have this strategy, these, these interesting, you know, manufacturing strategies, and and but immigration plays a role in all of those areas. I mean, I know you're itching to jump in, Mary. <laughs> well, I, I actually think that in, this is a report that we just released this past fall with the Migration Policy Institute, which showed that close to 30% of all students in post-secondary education were immigrant students or children of immigrants, okay? Mm -hmm. And that is not including international students. Mm -hmm. So international students and a third of all students in higher education are immigration impacted in one way or another. Now, what this doesn't also kind of surface is the fact if you think about that 28, 29% of students who are first or second generation immigrant students, they also accounted for nearly 60% of the growth in higher education from 2000 to 2018. Mm -hmm. And over 80%, as Terry was saying, are non-white. 
Mm -hmm. So 85% of Asian students in higher education are first or second generation immigrants. A quarter of black students in higher education are first or second generation immigrant. Mm -hmm. Over 60% of, of Latinx students and around 10% of white students. What happened over these past four years though, not only did we lose a cohort of international students as Maria noted, but we also have lost a cohort of future immigrant students mm. because the Trump policies also depress kind of right. so many immigrants from coming to the US. Mm -hmm. And our future in higher education is, is you know, fundamentally intertwined yeah. with the future of a robust immigration system or we will suffer. We will suffer in terms of enrollments, in terms of talents, yeah. in terms of what we can, you know, contribute to our communities. I can, if I can jump in there, I think because we've come into this administration super divided in this country, I think we actually need to be really smart about this one. I absolutely agree with Miriam that we need to, we need emphasis back on these things. I think we also need an emphasis on how we bring non-immigrants to some of these career paths that yeah. are very difficult, especially if you're trying to work full-time while you do them. There's almost okay. no way you're going to get to artificial intelligence engineer while working full-time while you're in school and caring for a family, right? So I think we need to we need policies that are smart where we look at like, here are these jobs that we're opening to, to visas all the time because we don't have Americans that are trained to do them. Yep. What are we doing to make those pathways mm -hmm. easy to get to for our all of our uh, right. American citizens? Like anyone who, no matter, regardless of background, if you want to learn the skills for one of those top jobs, yeah. we need to be providing major scholarships for those. Not just I'll right. pay your tuition, but I'll support you while you're in school, pay it back when you're done kind of thing, right? Yeah. And and I think if we compare those two things together, we start to heal some of these divides where it's like us versus them. No, it's us and them together. Yeah. Let's do it together. Right. Let's commit this together, right? You're an mm -hmm. American and you want an opportunity to do this. Here's your opportunity. If you don't take it, that's your problem. But the opportunity, I think right now, the opportunities aren't always there. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. right. And I think that that's that's really important. And what's interesting, of course, is that the fees from H-1B visas or other kind of visas are actually going to those kind of programs already. They are going especially to support whether it's underrepresented populations in STEM fields or other right. kinds of, you know, boosting native born students so that they can also pursue those fields. Is, right. it enough? is it enough though? I mean, do we hear about it? Is it enough money that a student going into college hears right away their freshman year, hey, if you want to be an engineer, it can be completely paid for. Right. Well, and, well and also, I don't think also, they hear that. Right. But also, does do they need to be pursuing the traditional four-year degree in service right. of that job is the other question where frequently yeah. there are tracks that are more certificates, even apprenticeships where they have, I know, Terry, you've talked about that in the past as well, right. more the, the German model, which is, you know, you have the apprenticeship built into your post-secondary experience. And, and I think that also would require better, better identif identification of emerging skills gaps and more custom curriculum that is designed to map to what people will actually have to do on their job. I was just talking to someone who was asking a room of 300 uh, university presidents, you know, how many of you are training, have any programs to teach your students how to use Salesforce? Yeah, and, that's, and that's the- None of them yeah. raise their hands. Yeah. And if you look at the job markets, like that's a marketable skill. And that's something if you're really trying to equip people for the future of work, you got to build that in and, and that's the level of like flexibility. That was why I get concerned about the creating K-12 and higher ed as separate yeah. because I think that the whole system needs to be reimagined. Well, I like Kristen Powers mentioned to us, she, I, we didn't post it in the broader, but you know, lifelong learning administration. Yes, yes. You know, that's what we're talking about. And you know, that's why I get frustrated with higher ed because higher ed wants, and it's not just higher ed, it's the regulations and the, the accreditors and all of that. But why shouldn't a student, 
you know, well, for, and by the way, the other thing about getting into the STEM fields is these kids have to make sure they've taken all the prerequisites in high school, mm-hmm. you know? So it goes back to that. You can't disconnect K-12 and higher ed from that perspective, because if you haven't taken the right prereqs, you're going to spend an extra two years in college, just getting through all of that. Yeah. But um, the other point is that. You could also go into, are all of those prereqs free? Well, yes, yeah. that's, that's a very important that's point, Maria, because. Can you, of worms. Next time. Yes. <laughs> on our next discussion with Maria. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's a, a big point is, you know, do they need all these prereqs? I, anyway, I could go on and on. Yeah. I took so many prereqs to learn statistics. And, you know, when it comes down to it, I didn't need most of them. Yeah. But anyway, um, the point, the bigger point, though, is that if a student gets to college and wants to, you know, do learn how to use Salesforce and then, you know, have that broader liberal arts education, why not? Yeah, it's you know, better. Too many of us in higher ed are like, oh, we're the life of the mind. I, I, look, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not saying that um, we, we, that's not a, ba- that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that students need concrete training. Right. Um, because that's what their employers are expecting. And no, we don't turn it ourselves into vocational schools if we're paying attention to what employers want. <laughs> right. Well, and I think the related point is just around disruption. You know, disruption comes from engaging with non-consumers, like who who typically wouldn't have bought your product. And I think there's a, you know, the the skills gaps and the the job gaps that exist frequently are people who just don't even have awareness that if I learned these relatively simple skills, I would be much more employable for the types of jobs that I want. They just don't have that awareness. And, you know, that's why I think understanding the diversity of the audience and empathizing with them becomes uh, so critical. And then particularly international students, at least historically, have been important uh, funding sources for uh, for higher ed as well. So like that's that's the reason why it just seems like there is a more thought. I guess Miriam, your perspective too, because you had a few articles that you shared with us. Um, what's your what's your take on outside of the flurry of activity that you're in the midst of right now? And thank you for your service and and the and the work that you and team are doing. But even beyond that, like where where do you see us heading now that we are in a new administration? Have you had a chance to kind of catch your breath and get some perspective on uh, what we should keep an eye on and what, if people want to stay activated, what they should stay activated against? Yeah, and actually, or be activated for. Sure. This is the time to, to lean in. I really, I, I know some folks like to say, okay, we're back to normal or back to kind of regular business. And rather, we need to take these months, especially in the area of immigration, but I think also in racial equity and climate and other you know, areas, of to make change, mm-hmm. right? This is a pivotal moment, but in order to make kind of reform reality, we're going to have to do some hard work that we were all into when we were in a defensive posture, but now yeah. we have to get into a more proactive Mm -hmm. So I also want to kind of go back to what Maria said. We have to be careful that we don't do this in a polarizing way. Mm -hmm. I mean, in fact, even as immigration was very polarizing over the past four years, it actually increased in terms of how many people were saying across the country that immigration was a good thing for the U.S., Mm -hmm. right? That actually increased. So there is going to be kind of real advocacy, and we're certainly going to be encouraging our members, but the broader higher education, and that's everything from community colleges, public and private, you know, regional, doctoral level, it's it's really the whole of higher ed with the whole of government approach mm-hmm. to support immigrant students, refugee students, and international students, and not only the students, but also the staff and faculty and families. Mm. who are also all involved in the, you know, the education enterprise. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I'm also hoping that we've learned is that colleges, campuses don't say, I just can, I only have to focus on the student. I don't have to focus on, on like the, the student and the family. Yeah. We know again in the pandemic that that's really important. Well, it's mm-hmm. always important. So we need to be supportive of policies that will help ensure predictability and certainty and support for students' families mm-hmm. and for our staff families, as well as for that, which seems to be more of a direct impact. Um, we're gonna be really active. We welcome, again, we have over 500 um, members, uh, presidents and chancellors, but we're 
welcome to have more. And we also do a lot of work to support staff and faculty on campuses who are trying to support their students. Mm -hmm. So not just federal policy, but also campus practices. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're gonna have to multitask as much as the administration is multitasking. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then Maria, how about you? Uh, you know, we caught up with you like a lifetime ago back in October. Uh, what's new, what's emerging in the, in the many years uh, since uh, our, our last engagement with you? What, what's on the horizon for Course Tune and what do you see on the horizon for, uh, for the world as we head into 2021 and beyond? Well, I, I sincerely hope it will be more careful design uh, of curriculum. Um, I think that now that we have all of these different modalities to teach, we actually accelerated the development of a, of a feature we've been hoping to build for a while, but it's coming out in our next release, which is um, variation, which allow you to lock the, the course nucleus, which is the, the course objectives and the learning objectives and spin up like records on our spindle. Spin up as many variations of that core nucleus as you want. So one for eight weeks, one for 15 weeks, one for online, one for you know hybrid, Professor Jones's course, Professor Palmer's course, professors mm -hmm. give it like, but they all sit on the same nucleus. So that consistency that needs to happen, the, the, the course objectives and the learning objectives can be the same, but the complete academic freedom that happens around that, what resources you're gonna use, what assessments you're gonna use, that can vary from variation to variation. And then you can see that yeah. they are consistent, no matter what the modality, no matter what the instructor, if you have 20 sections of a course, they have that that core to them, right? That's very cool. And I think that's been a, a, a visualization and a paradigm that's been really needed in education because mm -hmm. we talk about academic freedom, but I don't think that academic freedom was ever truly intended to let people teach whatever they wanted in every course, right? Mm -hmm. If you're teaching a course that's transferable, that's a prerequisite, that's a service course to other disciplines, you can't just go rogue on the course, right? right. You can go rogue on the textbook you use or on the, you know, how you assess or something, but the students still need to learn that core, right? There need to be some standards, yeah, for there sure. There need to be yeah. some standards there. And, and the beauty of having it that way is then it becomes much easier to track those standards as they relate to work workplace skills and mm -hmm. national national standards for that discipline and things like yeah. that, because you only have to do that on that, on that nucleus, not yeah. on all of every single variation of that. All the different uh, isotopes. Yeah, that, that's, yeah. That's, some, that's some cool stuff. And and for those who don't know about Course Tunes, uh, you should check it out in terms of the, when you were talking, Maria, I immediately had the the visualizations spinning around in my head. Yeah, so there, me there's too. Some... You can see me pulling out the learning objectives. <laughs> exactly. Know. So it's really cool to connect the visual because yeah. uh, you can you can understand a lot more through visual information at some in some context. And it's some cool stuff to, to check out there. And how about you, uh, Terry, as we're getting closer to uh, to conclusion, uh, what's on the horizon? I know we're going to be back again in a couple of weeks, but uh, I know, you know, we, we're trying to hit the book tour uh, conversation because uh, I know uh, you're, you got to you're, you're, you're getting ready to go go to battle uh, starting in February. But what else do you see on the horizon? Like, it's nice. It's nice to be back. This was a wonderful conversation, by the way. So, uh, so thank you so much to uh, Miriam and uh, Maria for joining. But, but I'd love to get maybe some concluding thoughts from you, Terry, and then any uh, we could do free form interpretive uh, ad libs after that. <laughs> well, we're well, gonna dance. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, unfortunately, the the I, anyway, we're not gonna get into that. But um, yeah, so you know. Obviously, next month is Black History Month. You know, there's a lot of events coming up. We'll, so I hope people will check out our, our, our community.brighterhighered.com because we'll be talking a lot about that. Um, because higher ed, of course, is... It, so one of the things, of course, that is happening alongside of the pandemic, which we've touched on, is the Black Lives Matter uh, right. movement, um, what's going on in higher ed around that. Um, there's been a, a big push to really reassess the ways we're dealing with diversity, equity, and inclusion because most of the things we've been doing for the last at least 20 years are not working. We're not seeing an increase in the percentage of faculty, you know, especially African American faculty. But actually, what really sh I find shocking is the, the low percentages of Latinx and Hispanic faculty. Um, there's just so many issues, and then sports. Um, you know, Mike and I love sports, <laughs> and, and you know, Black History. About 
that there's also a good time to talk about what's happening in, in sports, oh. especially in higher ed, because there's mm-hmm. a lot of issues coming up around, you know, should you know, athletes be paid? Mm-hmm. There's a disparate impact from that because right. of athletes are, you know, and, but even from the international perspective, you know, there's the Olympics and sure. whether that's going to happen or not, mm-hmm. um, you know, and the impact that has on higher ed, because of course, so many sports are, you know, a lot of the Olympic sports are dependent on um, higher ed for, right. you know, their athletes. And so I, I think there's just going to be a huge number of issues coming up in the next few months related to sports and higher ed, but also just more generally African-Americans and, and what's happening with Black Lives Matter. And yeah. of course, my book talks a lot about, you know, what do we do to try to really bridge the, these racial divides and, and yeah. how do we get past this long history of white supremacy and, and so on. And, and yeah. you know, as we know, white supremacy is a kind of a triggering word and we've seen that being played around in the, right. the political sphere. Sure. But, um, you know, structural racism is, is clearly an issue that is going to be uh, high, high, high on the agenda for yeah. the coming years, not just the next month. <laughs> yeah, it, do, it does remind me of Miriam's perspective too, where like it was easy to be outraged against the problems that may have been very apparent uh, right on, you know, even into this month. But now assuming some of that subsides, there'll be a justice front there, but it's more, what is the, how do you play offense around issues of equity, uh, issues around like digital inclusion and access? Um, Those are all going to be interesting topics. Those are the types of topics we're going to come back to uh, throughout. But uh, any, uh, any final thoughts before, before uh, Terry hits the we're done button? Uh, yeah, that's right. It's Wednesday. Wednesday. Groundhog Day is actually coming too. So, uh, it'll be the one day when we're actually allowed to be thinking, wait, didn't this happen already before? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I'm, I think I'm going to have to sit down with some popcorn and actually watch Groundhog Day. Yes. (laughs) An apt metaphor for the times. Yeah. A lot of sunny, sunny and share alarm clock uh, music. Yes. Yes. Yeah, well, I'm just going to ask people to keep their persistence and to really keep their enthusiasm for for making change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, because that will be that will be important. And um, I know people have strained budgets and strained resources and time. Uh, and and I want to be appreciative of what everyone has to go through. And I think we all are in sharing this space. Yeah, but yeah. there's there's the opportunity to do some important work. Yeah, and that's one thing I want to come back to because we usually would start off our discussion with you know what's happening with COVID. We know the vaccinations are, are yeah. happening haphazardly. We're hopefully we're going to see some, you know, better coordination around that. But um, you know, I, I think it's it's an important time to remember we're all in the middle of surviving a pandemic. Yes. <laughs> and that we can't, you know, it comes back to the connection issue. I, I know there was another comment about that, but, you know, connecting with our students is um, really important and to develop our communication skills, to, to remember to maintain that rapport, not only for this time of COVID, but more broadly. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to remember that that engagement is, is critical during this time period. And that engagement is what's gonna keep us sane. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think self care also yeah. for sanity mm-hmm. means that for faculty and staff, you may have ten things you want to do right now, but maybe mm-hmm. the thing to do is do two right now and write down the other eight in a multi semester plan for how they're going to happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. having a plan for how they're going to happen doesn't mean you're not going to do them. Mm-hmm. And then having grace. For each other is the thing. It's always it's like we're saying grace at the beginning and end of each of these things. But uh, but it is uh, it especially and we've talked a lot, Terry, about how grace and empathy go hand in hand, as well, because you never really know what's happening on the other side of a a Zoom meeting or an email or a no show. You know, like try to understand the human on the other end first. Mm -hmm. But uh, but but us humans, we're 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 pretty much done with our time. Is is that is that right, Terry? Or how do we want? Well, we have time for Miriam. Or, or Maria, Maria, did you want to respond to what Maria had to say real quick? I, I, I love it because sometimes I say to people when they say, what, you know, what can we really do? It's like, you can't do everything, but you can do at least one thing. Yes. Right. So, so. choose that one, that, that one item that you'll do to help support immigrant and international students from yes. my perspective. 
you yeah. may have others. Um, well, I think yeah. that's a good note to go out on. Um, choose one thing to do, you know, each day or each week that is going to help create change. And, you know, it may be just something you do for yourself. Creating change can mean, like Maria was saying, having self-empathy. But yeah, I, I agree completely that, you know, taking care of ourselves is is really the number one thing to do. So thanks to those. Thanks to everybody who's pre-ordered my Thank book, you. like Kristen. And, and um, you, we will thanks, be... Maria. Yes, you guys have been fantastic. Um, and we are continuing the conversation that our community on Brighter Higher Ed, I'll be posting some of those resources and actually Terrence uh, probably already in there posting some of these resources. And uh, thanks to Terrence who's in the background helping us out today and to everybody have a wonderful rest of your day. <music>